You know, in our house, we're about to um, celebrate um, another birthday in 14 days and counting down. And so one of the tasks that uh, Jasmine and I, um, probably more um, Jasmine, uh, have between now and then is to organise a birthday present. And uh, one of the things I've found um, as the children get older is that it actually gets a little bit harder to buy birthday presents sometimes. Um, Because what do you get the kids who have everything, I think? (laughs) Uh, What do you get them? And it, it did get me thinking, imagine if there was this present that you could buy your children right at the beginning of their life, and this present was so wonderful, so fantastic, that it would never grow old. It would ne- they would never grow tired of it. Uh, it was, it's something that's so wonderful that it, that it just keeps adapting and growing as they grow. And so they, they always uh, just are playing with it. They always love it. They don't want anything else because they have this one thing that just keeps on giving. Now, what is that thing? Does anyone know? I don't think it exists. But... There is actually a a gift that God gives to us that actually is like that. And do you know what it's called? It's called justification. Justification is a gift that God gives that when you get it, you realise it's so wonderful that you never grow tired of it and you realise that it has in it everything you need to live the Christian life to the fullest. And see, that's what this part of Romans is all about. Chapters 5 to 8. Okay? What we have in justification is so wonderful that it just transforms our lives completely. And so this passage here, chapters, uh, well, chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, this is where Paul kind of lays out. Here are the things that we have in justification. And so you'll notice verse 1. It begins with this turning point where it says, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, and then here are all the things that follow. Uh, See, up until now, what the letter has shown us is that we're all sinners. Okay, we all deserve to be condemned by God and punished, and God has set a day when He will do that. But the good news, the good news is that God has sent His Son into the world, and His Son Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Not only that, he died the death that we should have died by going to the cross to pay for all of our sin. And the moment that you turn back to God and put your trust in Jesus, God justifies you. What does that mean? It means that he declares you righteous in his sight. That's what justification is. God declaring you righteous in his sight. And he does that by crediting Christ's righteousness to you. Remember one of the illustrations we used was like a robe of righteousness that God puts on you. So when he looks at you, he sees you as perfect in his sight. That's the righteousness of Christ put on you. That's what it means to be justified. And what this passage is saying is if you have that, 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 that's so big, it's so wonderful, it has to change everything. It has to impact your life in some very significant ways. And in this passage, the impact that it makes, we can sum it up under this. It gives you an unshakable confidence. 
an unshakable confidence because if you look through the passage, you realise there's three parts to the passage and in each of these parts there's a reference to rejoicing. Okay, three times it says we rejoice. Uh, It says we rejoice in uh, verse 2 in the hope, we rejoice in suffering in verse 3 and we rejoice in God in verse 11. And these three statements about rejoicing, it's not just rejoice as in I'm happy, but the word has been used earlier in Romans and it's translated as boast. And so it's the kind of rejoicing that you do when you're absolutely confident of something. You know, when, you, when you're so sure that something good's coming, that you're just over the moon. That's, that's the idea. And so each of these summary statements, we rejoice in hope, we rejoice in suffering, and we rejoice in God. If we can get our heads around those three things, then we'll realise just how much justification transforms our lives. So that's what we're going to do. Let's look at these three things. First, we rejoice in hope. That's the point of verses 1 to 2. Uh, But we've got to follow the the line of thinking here. Because verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, here is what comes out of that. Number one, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Uh, now, this peace with God, it's not, it's not talking about the feeling of peace, you know, that, that kind of subjective feeling of peace that you can have. Uh, when I think about that thing, you know, the feeling of peace, I think about sitting on the banks of a gently flowing river, you know, with birds in the background, or sitting on warm sand on a secluded beach with waves gently rolling in. You know, just when I talk about that, I feel more relaxed uh, just, just thinking about it. And sometimes the Bible does say that God's presence has that effect on us. Okay, that if God's with you, there is that feeling of peace. But that's not what this is talking about here. This is not talking about the feeling of peace, but rather the status of peace. It's saying that if you've been justified by faith, you're in this position where God is no longer against you. Okay, God is for you. Uh, your status with God has been changed from one of hostility to peace. And remember we learned earlier in Romans that because of our sin we're all under God's wrath. But then Jesus went to the cross, satisfied God's wrath against us, and as a result, we're now his friends. We now have peace. And uh, whether you feel at peace with God or not, it makes no difference. It's not talking about how you feel. It's talking about how God is toward you. Peace. That's wonderful. Uh, That's the first thing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, if you've been justified, it says you also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So here's a picture of access. And um, just thinking, if you think about access, uh, imagine, if, um, imagine if someone gave you a special pass into the MCG, but it's not just into the MCG, it's actually into the coach's box to watch your favourite AFL team whenever you like. Now, how good would that be? Or imagine if someone gave you a key to one of the most luxurious apartments in the city so that you, you could just use it whenever you like. Now, you don't get into those kind of places unless someone gives you access, someone very high up 
has to give you access. That's, that's kind of the picture here in, in this um, statement. But this, this is access into something far greater than a coach's box or a, a luxury apartment. This is access into grace in which we now stand. Access into grace. This is really incredible. It's saying we actually can stand in grace. And grace here means um, God's favour. We now stand in this relationship with God where we always have his favour. Okay, if you've been justified, you're in a, in a relationship where God is always smiling on you. Even on your worst days in terms of your obedience. Okay, on, your, on, your, on your most wretched days in terms of your obedience to God. If you've been justified, God always has his smile on you. He always has his favour upon you because you stand in grace. Uh, your relationship with God, it's, it's not dependent upon your obedience. It's dependent on the perfect work of Jesus. That's why if you're in Christ, you stand in grace. God always has his favour on you. And then there's another implication of justification at the end of verse 2 which says we rejoice and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and this is where all of these things are getting to this is the main point the hope of the glory of God what does that mean well can you imagine a world where there is no pain no suffering no sickness a place where there is not even any death. Can you imagine a place where there is no evil, no selfishness, no lies, no fighting, no hate? And can you imagine a world where God's presence is completely unveiled so that you, you bask in his presence? That's what this is talking about. The hope of the glory of God includes all of those things. Uh, the glory of God is actually what God created us for but something that we lost due to sin. See, chapter 3, uh, verse 28, it said, All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. See, because of sin, we don't have the glory of God. And that's why we live in a world that's, that's fallen, it's broken, it's cursed. Everything gets old and wears out and, and breaks. And because of sin, we're now, we're now subject to death and decay. Okay, but the coming of Jesus guarantees that one day everything is going to be restored to all that it was meant to be, you know, into the glory of God. And so one day we will be liberated from death, liberated from sin and suffering, and live in the full presence of God. That's the glorious future that we have in Jesus. That's what it means to have the hope of the glory of God. And the emphasis there is on the certainty of it. Because it doesn't just say we have the hope, it says we rejoice in the hope. Or remember, we have confidence in this hope of the glory of God. Now how can that be? How can you rejoice or have confidence in something that you don't already have? Hey, how can you be celebrating something that you don't already have yet? Now, normally if something's promised, don't you wait until you get it before you have a big celebration? Now, no one celebrates something that's uncertain or that hasn't come yet. 
Remember, who, who watched Collingwood versus Essendon on, on Tuesday? Remember three-quarter time, or, you know, Essendon went into the, the last quarter of the game with a 28-point lead. But were any of the Essendon supporters celebrating at that point? No, not at all, because they're playing Collingwood. And Collingwood uh, dubbed this year the Comeback Kings. And, of course, they proved it again, marching home by 13 points. See, no one celebrates something that you don't have yet, something that's uncertain. But here's the thing. When it comes to what God promises, the hope of glory, it's not uncertain. Okay? Even though it's still to come in the future, you can have absolute confidence now. You can have a party now. You can celebrate it. You've already got it. It is coming. Why? Because there's no last quarter fizzing out with God. Okay? He's not helplessly trying to steer his team to a desired outcome, but, but has no idea how it's going to go. This is God we're talking about. And not only that, the outcome has already been secured in an event that's already happened in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Jesus has risen already. He's entered into glory already. So he's already secured it. And he's there preparing a place for all who will come to him. And so therefore, the hope of glory, it's guaranteed. And that's why we are rejoicing. We're already celebrating. Now, all of this goes back to justification. Okay? These things are yours only if you are justified, only if you are declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. But when you're justified, you have peace with God, you have access into grace, and therefore you have the hope of glory which means if you've been justified, you will be glorified. It's like a chain that can't be broken. And that's why the Christian life is one of certainty. It's one of confidence. We rejoice in hope. We have confidence in this hope. The Christian life is not God standing at the end saying, if you live a good enough life, I'll let you into glory, and then watch us as we all fail miserably no, no, God does it all. He's already done it. He's already secured the position. And so now you live uh, marching in victory to that guaranteed end, the hope of glory. And that's why the Christian life is one of joy, one of certainty. We rejoice in hope. So that's the first thing, we rejoice in hope. Second, though, Here's the next one. We rejoice in suffering. We rejoice in suffering. You see that in verse 3 stated there. Now, this is very important because if justified, if being justified is such a big deal, if it is so life-transforming, then it has to offer something when it, when it comes to the real, the real issues of life, particularly suffering. Okay, if someone is suffering, you can tell them some nice things, but they'll say, look, what good is that to me? I'm suffering. And Paul knows that. He, he knows what life is really like. He's a realistic person, and so he shows us, that just, shows us the difference justification makes to how we handle suffering. And he says, not only does it enable you to cope, it actually enables you to rejoice in suffering. To rejoice in suffering, how can that be? Let's think it through. If you are justified, you have 
peace with God. You stand in grace. And therefore, whenever suffering comes into your life, the one thing you can be absolutely sure of is that it's not a sign that God is now against you. Okay, Suffering is never punishment for sin. Okay? I know that's what people fear. You know, something bad happens. Oh, God must be against me now. God must be attacking me. He must be punishing me for that wrong thing I did the other week. That's instinctively how we think. But listen, if you're justified, if God has declared you righteous, that can never be. He can never be against you now. Remember, you stand in that favour. And if you know that Jesus has taken your place at the cross, taken the punishment for you, then you know suffering can never be punishment for sin. That's all being taken by Jesus. And therefore, you can know that it's, suffering is never because God has given up on you. It's never because he doesn't care about you anymore. He looks at you as if you were Jesus himself. So you know that he is for you. You know that he will never leave you or forsake you. And that means that when suffering comes into your life, and let's be frank, it will, when it comes, your justification assures you that it must always have a good purpose. Okay, we, we know God is in control. We know he is the one who puts us through suffering. And if, if we know we're, we're righteous in Christ, then we know that it must always have a good purpose. God must always be doing something for us, for our good. There must be a, a purpose in it that will benefit us in some way. And therefore, when we have that knowledge, when we, when we know that we're justified, therefore there must always be a good purpose in suffering, that enables us to then, rather than running away from God when suffering comes, rather to run to him and to cling to him more tightly than we ever would if life was always nice and easy. See, it's only when suffering comes then you go, God, I need you like never before. And then you start to experience all the things that he's given you in justification. You know, the peace you have with God, oh, that becomes so much more real in suffering. Okay, the, 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 the standing in grace, the favour, his smile on you, now it becomes real. Because it's all you've got. If life was always easy, we would just shrug our shoulders and go, justified, oh yeah, fantastic, but I'm off doing all these other things. I'm playing golf, I'm going cycling, I'm doing all these good things. But when suffering comes, that's when we cling to God and then we find that God is more wonderful than we could ever imagine. And when, see, when that happens, a chain reaction begins in our lives. And that chain reaction is recorded here in verse 3, where it says that uh, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. So you notice the chain reaction Suffering produces endurance. Endurance means the ability to cope under pressure. Endurance produces character. And that, the word character has the idea of something that is tested. So you think about um, soldiers training to be uh, special forces. 
you know, I watched a documentary on the training that um, they put soldiers through who were, tra who were yeah, training to be special forces, and it's basically extreme suffering. That's what the training is. They just put them through hell. And the purpose of that training is to test these fellows to see if they can cope, to see if they have what it takes. And not only that, by putting them through that extreme pressure, that actually refines them. It makes them into the sort of people who can cope. And that's what this is saying. For the person who has been justified, suffering is like that pressure that tests you to prove what's really the deepest trust of your heart. But not only that, it, the ones who do trust in the Lord, what suffering does is it makes you more like Christ. Okay? It produces character. And as a result of that, it says character produces hope. So this is like going full circle again. You know, we have the hope of glory, but when we go through suffering and produces endurance and character, that hope is then strengthened. And it becomes a thing that we value more than anything else. All of the other hopes that we have in life, it's in suffering that you see that they're all empty. They don't actually help. You know, the hope of getting a nice fancy house one day that, that means nothing to you when you're suffering. You need something far more solid than that, and that's what we have in Christ, the hope of glory. And that hope of glory becomes so much more, uh, more certain <clears throat> in the midst of suffering. <clears throat> now, in saying all this, <clears throat> that, that doesn't make the pain of suffering any less real. Okay? It doesn't make suffering itself enjoyable, because there is nothing enjoyable about suffering. But what this is saying is that we now have a cause for joy in our suffering. You know, the joy of knowing the Lord, the, the, the joy of experiencing uh, the peace we have in Him, the hope of glory. There's a sense in which suffering enhances these realities. And that's what we have as a cause for joy. And remember that, joy, that word rejoice, it means confidence. Okay, we always have the confidence... The suffering will not destroy us. Sometimes it feels like that. You, know, you, you face some suffering and think, I don't think I can get through this. I'm not going to come out the other end whole anymore. But no, no, if you're justified, that presses you into God. And now you have the confidence. You'll come out looking even more like Him, more beautiful. So we rejoice in suffering. So we rejoice in hope, we rejoice in suffering. And the third one is we rejoice in God. And you see that right at the end in verse 11. Okay, we rejoice in God. Now to get to that though, Paul actually, he deals with another big question that comes out of all of this. You know, all of this talk about certainty and confidence and hope. Uh, how can you know that is actually true? Okay, remember the hope of glory, you know, a world that's perfect, living forever, all these things. It almost sounds too good to be true. So how can we be sure that it is true? I mean, verse 5 does say, uh, this hope does not put us to shame. How can you be sure? What is the guarantee? Well, listen to the answer in verse 5. This hope doesn't put us to shame because... 
God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love. That's the guarantee. Uh, And and when, when this says God's love has been poured into our hearts, it is actually talking about an experience of God's love. You know, something you feel. And later on in chapter 8, Paul returns to this idea of the Holy Spirit communicating to us in, in our hearts that we are children of God. And if we're children of God, then we, he, he tells us we're heirs, which means you know, you're guaranteed all of the, the promises. And I, and, I, and I know many of you here have experienced that. You have experienced the love of God in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You know what it's like. And you know that in that experience, the assurance that God is real, that everything he's promised will come to pass, you know, that, that assurance, it's there, you have it. There's no doubt in your mind. Okay, but is, is that all God gives us, just a feeling? You know, feelings can come and go. Is that all we have, to be absolutely sure? Well, no, because look what Paul goes on to say. He talks about an objective demonstration of God's love that proves without a doubt that God loves us. So you look at verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would uh, dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if there's one act that communicates more clearly than any other that you love someone, it's the willingness to lay down your life for them. And I've mentioned this before, but the town that I grew up in has a clock tower right in the centre of the town in honour of a school teacher who rescued um, her students who were drowning and in the process drowned herself. And that was such an honourable act of love that the town got together, pulled all their money and built this enormous clock tower to honour the sacrifice that she made. And that is the ultimate demonstration of love that you can get in, in humanity. Someone willing to lay down their life for someone else. Uh, that's why so many movies celebrate it. Now, all of the memorable movies, what's the main point? the hero laying down their life for someone else. It's just such a beautiful expression of love. You know, my favourite one is um, Saving Private Ryan. Remember that scene right at the end where um, Tom Hanks, I don't know what his name in the movie is, but you know, he's saying, earn it to, say, to, to Private Ryan. And it gives you goosebumps when you see that, that the sacrifice he was willing to make to save young Private Ryan. Or even those Avengers movies, uh, you know, Avengers movies, you've got um, Hawkeye and um, Black Widow trying to outdo each other for the honour of laying down their lives for one another. That's what love looks like. You want to know if, if, if someone really loves you? When you see them lay their life down for you, then you know, okay? Then you can be sure. But here's the thing, with all of these examples, they all have something in common the thing that they all have in common is that the people they're dying for are all worthy of dying for. Okay, they're all all worth dying for. 
which means that in all of these examples of laying down their life for others, they're doing that out of a sense of obligation. Okay, there is actually a sense of obligation, and we know that because you know that that um, school teacher who saved those kids from drowning. Let's imagine that she didn't do that. You know, she just stood on the bank watching and did nothing, just watching them drown. Now, surely someone would say, couldn't you have at least tried? Couldn't you have at least done something? See, there's an obligation there. Now, that's not to diminish her love for them. Okay? It's still a wonderful act of real love. But there's still an obligation. And the point of verses 6 to 8 is saying that when it comes to God's love, it's unlike anything else. Because in God, there was no obligation to save us. None at all. We are unworthy of saving. That's the point it's making. See, listen to the type of people that Christ dies for. In verse 6, it says, uh, weak, which means you know, people who can't do anything for themselves. Uh, but ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. It's, it says sinners in verse 8. Enemies of God, in verse 10. That's the people who Christ died for. That's the people God saved, which means God was under no obligation to do it. The only obligation he has to us is to punish our sin forever. That's the only obligation God has. And yet, incredibly, out of his own free decision, out of reasons that come purely out of his own nature of love, he decided to lay his life down for wretches, to lay his life down for enemies. No one does that. Okay? Why would God do that? It's just because of his love for us, that he decided to love us when we were unlovely. And, and that's why verse 8, it is the most loved verse in the Bible, or one of the most loved verses. Right? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Okay, that gives you goosebumps more than um, saving Private Ryan. Uh, there is no greater way for God to prove that he loves you. No greater way. And here's the point of all of this. If you know that God loves you like that, then you can be sure he would never make a promise to you that he has no desire to keep. Okay, if, he, if he loves you in that incredible way, if he has proved his love in that impossible way, then you can be absolutely sure that he will never, ever sell you a lie. He will never tell you, you know, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved forever, but then that's all rubbish. He wouldn't do that. Because his love proves that he will do what he says. His love is proved at the cross. See, he's done it all, and it's communicated by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul completes this section with this statement of absolute assurance in verses 9 to 11 by explaining that if God has done the most amazing, wonderful thing in the cross, then surely he will do everything else that he says he does. So let's look at it. Verse 9 to 11. Since therefore we have... Been, uh, now being justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And reconciliation means we were once enemies of God, but now we have been made his friends. And he did that through the cross. And if God was willing to do that for us, while we were in our absolute worst state, then surely you can trust him with anything that he promises. Of course he's going to fulfill it. Why would we ever doubt him? And see, if you have Jesus then, if you put your faith in Jesus, you really do have the certainty that you will enter glory when you die. Now, have you, have you ever worried that what happens when I cross the final line, you know, when I enter death, what if when I get there, there's nothing there? Have you ever worried that? Well, here's the assurance. God loves you. He's proved it at the cross. And so when he promises you eternal life, when you cross that line, there will be something there. Okay? You will see God himself. It's guaranteed. And so I wonder, do you have that confidence? Do you have that kind of confidence? That absolute assurance that no matter how messed up my life is, no matter how messed up I am, no matter what happens in the future, no matter how hard it gets, the one thing I am certain of is that I will enter that glory on that final day. Do you have that confidence? There's only one way to have it. It's through faith in Jesus. That's, that's what this passage is bracketed by. Verse 1 says it, it's, it's through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 11, exactly the same statement. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the doorway in. It's, it's his death that pays for all of our sin. It's his perfect life that justifies us. And so when you have Jesus, you're safe forever. You will enter glory. It's guaranteed. That's the unshakable confidence that we have in Christ.